Okay, so uh, we had four readings tonight, all of about the similar topicals, and uh, a little bit hard to choose which ones to go through, but I, I think start with uh, the one from the book called Mind in the Balance. And, and uh, do people have their hard copies yet? I'm the only lucky guy. The rest of you and Liz. All right, Liz. The rest, it's in the proverbial mail, right? Yeah. So you'll get, but you. The actual, the actual mail. The actual proverbial mail. Proverbially. It's in the conventional mail or the ultimate mail. <laughs> yeah. On tax day, it went in the mail. Do you know how popular I was at the post office yesterday? <laughs> 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 That's great. It's a tax man. <laughs> um, that sort of taxing, isn't it? Maybe sweat. It's a good image, lives at the post office with a stack of... Anyway, so you have the uh, stuff that was circulated by PDF by the real mail called email. And there's four documents. One of them was called the ground... I think the, the PDF is called the ground state or the ground... something ground uh, something. Everybody find that one? Anybody not able to find that one? The Ground State of Consciousness, Chapter 12 from Mind in the Balance. Page 89. I wonder if the thing was uh, sorted, uh, named by... Ground state of the page number. I sent it out again this evening with, no, well, that was last evening, with footnotes. Mine came sideways. The ground of being. Yes. Yeah, sideways. it's two sheets per page. Do you guys know how to change that in PDF world? No, I, I turned my computer. No. <laughs> Yeah, I you, you take your computer or you lie down. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, just just tap on it and it should say rotate left or right. How's that in work? The left, in the left margin. Did that work for you? Here, let's do a little screen share. This uh, computer 101. So you're saying tap on it here? Uh. This is not quite Adobe, but but basically you want what to go to view and rotate clockwise. Right. This is the, this is what you go to view, rotate, and then in this case, rotate it clockwise. Right. Bravo. Everybody, everybody okay now? No. You have an okay. iPad, so I, uh, Apple world is its own world. It's like a, there's another level of consciousness. There's substrate consciousness, the true nature of consciousness, and then Apple consciousness. 
Mac world. But the, uh, I think Kevin was saying in Mac world, you should be able to tap on the left margin. Is that right? Um, That's right. There are little icons of the pages and you just tap on the three dots and it gives you some choices. You can say rotate left, rotate right, etc. Yeah. How's that, Amelia? Does that work? The th do you see the three dots? Uh, it's it's okay because the when there are two pages, it works for uh, yeah, it works fine. Later, the first page only I have to turn around. Uh, yeah, it's okay. okay. Thank you. Okay. Oh, I see. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, you see, if you fix the first page, maybe this other pages will go bad. I see. I see. I see. So I don't fix the first page. <laughs> yeah. Unfixed. Anyway, according to the earliest accounts of the Buddhist teachings recorded in the Pali, so we'll go through two of them tonight. This one, and then there was another one that went into all sorts of wonderful Dzogchen and Vipassana stuff. Well, a little bit like cheating. We'll do. Just don't tell the others that aren't here tonight, okay? Should we start the recording again or something? Or it's been recording. I'll trim it down after. Okay. We're good. Yeah. According to the earliest accounts, um, he said that by focusing awareness upon one's nature, uh, uh, sorry, focusing awareness upon its own nature, one eventually apprehends. Oh, I don't like this part. Sign of the mind is this confusing. Let's see. It's really the next page. And that first page was a problem. First page was a problem anyway. He's like really into this thing called the Bavanga. Bavanga. <laughs> okay, so the defining characteristic <laughs> of consciousness. It sounds like a dance, doesn't it? The Bavanga. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I kept saying that. Bavanga! Okay. <laughs> I'm with you. When I first came across it, I was like, oh my God. Okay. Did, did everybody file their taxes yesterday? Everyone's done with that? No, I forgot. You forgot. I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> wow. I've, I've done it late before, and they just they charge you like a few dollars, basically. It's not a big deal. Ooh. Oh, that's good thing. to know. Yeah. yeah, that is. Okay. According to many advocates of the Mahayana school of Buddhism, so in the next page, the defining characteristics. Consciousness is characterized by two fundamental qualities, luminosity and cognizance. Luminosity is clarity, um, the reflective quality of mind. That's my gloss. He's about to give his. Cognizance is the knowing quality. To get some idea, imagine you've been immersed in a sensory deprivation tank. He seems to love this tank thing also. He uses that a lot. So efficient, you're entirely unaware of your body environment, your physical sense pick up, senses pick up nothing. Imagine that all discursive thoughts, images, other activities of the mind subside. I guess in this case, he 
didn't have the double shot of espresso that he did last week, right? So thoughts subside in this in this tank. Even in this state of profound inactivity, kind of acuity appears to your awareness. Now he's telling us that this is going to happen. We, you know, this is a uh, assumption on his part, but none of us have done this. But he's saying that that maybe this would happen. And this appearance is produced by the mind's luminous quality, a kind of vacuity. Nothing else is happening. He's trying to draw in and uh, uh, give us a. Uh, like a semblance of what this might be by imagining that you have nothing going on in this mind but like this just um, open open uh, clarity of space this appearance is produced by the mind's luminous quality in addition there's an immediate sense of being aware and that is an expression of the mind's Two is an expression of the mind's luminosity. Consciousness not only illuminates this vacuity and its own presence as awareness, it also knows that the space of the mind is empty and that there's awareness of the space. There's no cognizance. Anyway, I don't know. That, that wasn't that clear, was it? I, should, I, I had a hard time, in other words, figuring out what to read for this class. Let's see, in the preceding chapters where he goes through shamatha, you may bring previously unconscious memories, fantasies, and so forth into awareness or common experience of mental states is heavily edited and processed by the habitual structuring of mind. So we tend to experience this state of thinking and emotions as normal. <clears throat> But by training this conscious, the light of consciousness, uh, we, we are able to see unseen mental processes that seem utterly alien to our past experience and sense of personal identity. We dredge up all sorts of weird shit, right? As, conscious, as we consciously expose the deep space of the mind through thousands of hours of observation. So if you practice half an hour a day for a year, that's 300... 65 half hours so in two years in in uh, in six years you'll have accomplished a thousand hours right so if you've been practicing for 12 years you're in the thousands if you're fairly regular <clears throat> People here have been practicing for 12 years. Anybody? Give or take. Uh, let's see. We penetrate normally hidden dimensions that are more chaotic. Levels where the order and structure of the human psyche are just beginning to emerge. Strata upon strata, mental processes previously concealed within the con subconscious manifest. Skim to the next paragraph. The culmination of this meditative process is the experience of the substrate, Aliya Vishnana, which is characterized by the three traits of bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. And the interesting part is that bliss does not arise 
in response to any sensory stimulus for the physical senses are withdrawn as if in deep, deeply asleep. <laughs> Here, I, I circulated it the week before with on a one-page thing version. No, I didn't. Shoot. So that doesn't work for you, huh? Mm. The, the three dots and the tapping? Okay. I, I guess, what, I have to download it and then maybe? Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, see, I've been I don't know if the I've browser viewer will do it. <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can do. I've got a good idea. Let's do a different reading. <laughs> the Why not? Okay. One's called the three... natures of the mind. It's from fathoming the mind. I got it now. Apparently. Am I back? It's in and out. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> so did you hear that? The three natures of the mind from the book Fathoming the Mind. And I, I got to make a note to myself with these double-sided things that there's a problem. So am I still here? Really speaking? Okay. First, there's the essential nature of the mind. And this was the one that uh, we've spoken about this earlier. Cynthia pointed out that this is a confusing term because in some traditions or teachers' worlds, uh, the, the essential nature of the mind means uh, the ultimate nature of the mind. And here, in this case, it's important to know that he's when he says the essential nature of the mind, he means the, na the, the true nature of the relative samsaric mind. Rob, you got this one? Everyone okay? Got it? This is the best one anyway. To understand what is meant in Buddhist context by the essential nature of the mind, we may contrast this with its manifest nature, the practice of taking the impure mind as the path, also called settling the mind in its natural state. So keep note of that, that <clears throat> those two phrases refer to the same thing, settling the mind in its natural state, which is the uh, one of the different deeper phases of shamatha. Where first you have shamatha with an object, like a concrete object, and then there's shamatha on the nature of the mind, which is settling the mind in its natural state, and then you have shamatha without any object. So those three levels of shamatha. And he gives them different names in different places, different readings, which is very confusing. 
Emily. You're making us all tired. Sorry. <laughs> um, and he's saying that's the same as uh, taking the impure mind as the path because this practice of shamatha on the nature of the mind just focuses right on the mind. It doesn't deal with some object like the breath, like some external object or a visualized object or thoughts, which are all content of mind. It just deals with the mental function, the projector, as it were. Is a sophisticated method for examining the manifest nature of thoughts, which includes memories, desires, emotions, and all manner of mental appearances from the vantage point of the stillness of awareness, one may observe with an increasingly rigorous internal objectivity. It's funny, in, in, uh, funny idea. The circumstances by which mental events arise how they are present once they've risen, and how they vanish. That famous practice that is the essence of Mahamudra and also the introductory practices of Dzogchen, which is looking at where mental material comes from, where it is when it's present, and where it goes when it dissolves. Derek? Yes. I mean, I think we mentioned this in previous classes, but this sounds very much like Vipassana investigation, as you said, like Mahamudra, like looking at where they're coming. And yet he's been so adamant about the necessity for shamatha. And then when he talks about advanced shamatha, it sounds like like he's already switching to investigation, which is interesting. It, it is interesting. This, this one practice... Um, so there's two parts to, to what you brought up. And this one practice sort of spans shamatha and vipassana, and it appears in both. And interestingly, when you look at um, what Trungpa Rinpoche taught, and in particular, what I'm talk referring to is like what he taught at his first seminary, which was 1973. Mm -hmm. And that's like his first time when he's got his senior students he's been working with for all of three years. Um, but uh, he's been working with them and he has them for three months and he's going to really teach them the real thing. The full three, nine yanas or three yanas. And he starts with a, a, a talk on meditation where he says, I'm going to start to give you a more structured version of meditation practice, even though, although before I've given like different people different things, and much of it was very formless, I want you to do more form-structured practice. Second talk of that seminar is on the eight levels of consciousness. So he goes through the structure of mind, introduces this, you know, what Alan would call the substrate, the Alia Vishnana. And then he gives four talks on the four foundations of mindfulness. And in the talk on mindfulness of uh, body, I think it is, towards the end, uh, he, he gives, he refers to the practice of looking at the mind, where thoughts arise, dwell, and go. It's like, what? <laughs> And um, 
and then in the Q and A, somebody asked them. In the Q and A, I think of the the last talk on mind, where at the end of the talk on mindfulness of the the fourth mindfulness, you know, he gives mindfulness of body, mindfulness of livelihood. You know, he's sitting in front of a bunch of hippies that don't have jobs. You know, so there's a little bit of a pun there, I think. And then, it, and then mindfulness of effort, and then mindfulness of mind, very different from the traditional versions or common translations. And finally, at the last talk, um, in the fourth talk, he goes through what he calls nyams or temporary appearances, temporary meditative experiences, and he says there's two types. One type is um, um, the three qualities of bliss, luminosity, and non-thought. And he portrays them sort of as a trap. He has this negative gloss on them. Don't get, you know, caught in these. And then he presents the five... uh, um, And I think he characterizes those three more as like temporary, and he uses this image of like a patch that wears off or like mist that dissolves. And then he says there's this other set of five that portray progressive experiences along the way. And it's the waterfall and then the fast river and going to the ocean, right? <clears throat> and um, and then somebody asks him, are you giving us a different four set of mindfulnesses than the, the traditional one? And he says... He says, no, I'm I'm doing the same thing. I'm just using more practitioner-oriented language. Go figure. And then uh, somebody asks him, are these shamatha or vipassana? And he says, no, these are shamatha. (laughs) And then somebody asks him, are these hinayana or mahayana? Great questions, you know. The, the Q&A and the transcripts are amazing. And uh, he says, no, these are all so-called Hinayana. Um, anyway, so that's, I brought this up because... So you're saying in the mindfulness of body, he kind of touches on just this point. He does. He like, Yeah, he mentions the, this technique. Okay. Yeah, he mentions Thanks. counting. Yeah, it's odd. But but in other words, this one technique seems to span both, um, because uh, in in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state, you're looking at the nature of mind, and the nature of mind is that it's constantly arising in this content, and so without paying attention to the content, you're looking at the quality of um, experience that's happening, mental experience, divorced from the content of that mental experience. The other reason I mention this is because I'm fascinated by that he presented that that order of topics where he goes into the eight st- stages of consciousness at the beginning. It's totally not your average presentation of Hinayana. <laughs> You know, this is the beginning of the Hinayana, and it's it's like so traditional Dzogchen, where they go through the nature of mind at the beginning. 
and they you know they do this whole thing of mind is primary and blah 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 anyway um then the other thing is that this this presentation here um has some stuff about Vipassana in it which is why i said earlier that this one is very interesting and it's sort of a little peek into the area of Vipassana so that was a long-winded response. Uh, in classical Buddhist practice of close, closely applying mindfulness to the mind, one also examines whether mental phenomena are stable or in constant flux. So he's going to the traditional version of mindfulness practice, which um, <clears throat> uses, in his opinion, uses the four foundations of mindfulness as an insight practice. And insight in the so-called classical Buddhism, which would be what we currently call Theravadan or Hinayana or early Buddhist teachings, uh, insight is focused on the, th the three marks of existence, which are impermanence, um, suffering, and essencelessness, right? Um, one also examines whether mental phenomena are stable or in constant flux, are veritable sources of well-being or not, <clears throat> or fundamentally unsatisfying, and whether they are by their own nature, I or mine, the three marks of existence, or simply events arising in dependence upon prior causes and conditions. That's a pretty leading tip there, isn't it? Moreover, a central theme in such investigations is to determine which mental factors play crucial roles in affecting the, afflicting rather the mind and triggering harmful behavior and which give rise to a genuine sense of well-being for oneself and others. So a central theme is, you know, uh, noticing what to accept and what to reject, what uh, qualities are positive supporting qualities on the path and which ones are not. And also, interestingly, in the in that early seminary by Trung Rinpoche, in the talk on livelihood, so-called, towards the end of that talk, he talks about well-being. And he gives this image of there being three types of well-being, like a mountain, like a... Uh, a lake is the third one. I can't remember what the second one is, but he uses this image of a ladle. Remember, he gives this term and says it's a ladle that you can hold and it like fits in your hand nicely. <clears throat> anyway, specifically, one examines the ways in which craving, hostility, and delusion disrupt the equilibrium of the mind and generate unease, anxiety, and happiness. The manifest nature of the mind is scrutinized in such that is scrutinized in such practices does arise in dependence upon brain activity and physical stimuli from the body and environment, as well as on the basis of prior states of consciousness and mental processes. So we'll then there's the essential nature of mind. <laughs> Was it frozen? Just for a sec. You're back now, then. <laughs> My computer went.
at me. <coughs> anyway, uh, so this mind is, is strongly configured, conditioned by many environmental, physiological, and psychological factors that are uniquely human. You know, and uh, so interestingly, he mentions that, acknowledges that the mind is impacted by the brain, right? Um, in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state, one allows this flow of consciousness that is shaped by all such factors to melt. So this flow of consciousness of the manifest nature of mind that is shaped by all such factors, the factors being brain activity, physical stimuli for the environment, as well as the base of prior states of consciousness and mental processes, the many environmental, physiological, psychological factors to melt into a progressively primal flow that is called the bhavanga, no, the essential nature of the mind, <laughs> the primal flow. The relation between the manifest and essential nature of the mind may be likened to that between a specialized cell such as a neuron and a stem cell. Stem cells are uh, is configured by biological factors to become any one of a variety of specialized cells. So this primal flow of consciousness known as the substrate is configured by mental and physical factors to become a wide range of human and non-human minds first indication that non-humans also have a bhavanga or a, a alia vijnana substrate consciousness so your dog and cat to review the method of settling the mind in its natural state while resting in the stillness of awareness good luck with that we draw the attention from all five domains of sensory experience and focus single-pointedly on the domain of mental events observing whatever thoughts arise without following after those pertaining to the past or without being drawn into those about the future. The other, uh, so this is the other very uh, typical scheme that's introduced in Mahamudra is not following after the past, the future, nor fixating on or clinging on to the present. Do not try to modify, block, or perpetuate any mental events that arise, but simply observe. So that's not clinging to the present. Modifying, block, or perpetuate any mental events that arise. But simply observe their nature without letting your attention be drawn away to the reference of thoughts or images. The reference being when you have a thought about ice cream, ice cream is the referent, and the thought is just the mental energy. So observe the, the nature of the thought, the mental energy of thought. You know, so first you have to distinguish what those two are. And that's not immediately obvious, but hopefully at this point from your practice, you have some sense of what's the difference between a thought and the content of thought. Sustain the flow of mindfulness without being distracted by any objective appearances to your five physical senses and without identifying with any subjective mental impulses or processes. Sustain the stillness of your awareness in the midst of the movements of the mind. As the Buddha Samantabhadra, who is the Dharmakaya aspect of Buddhahood, in the Nyingma tradition, explains in the Vajra Essence. So there's this text called the Vajra Essence, 
which is one of a number of texts revealed, received as terma by this gentleman, Dujam Lingpa. And <clears throat> is one of the uh, main texts that Alan has received from Gelcho Rimshe, his teacher, guru for the Dzogchen teachings. And so he's translated and taught and has books about uh, this gentleman's texts, a number of them. And if you're interested, you can find them uh, from wisdom publications or um, uh, the usual like Amazons and so forth. Um, and so there's uh, the Vajra Essence is a text by Duj, by uh, Dujam Link, but actually his it's a um, another terma, but it's a commentary on a short terma that he received earlier called the Sharp Vajra of Awareness Tantra. Just to try to confuse you and sidetrack you there a little bit. Anyway, this guy blue-colored guy says in this other book, fluctuating thoughts do not cease. However, mindful awareness exposes them so you don't get lost in them as usual. So this is the, the main technique of Vajrayana, is that we don't actually have to subdue our thoughts and, and harness them and, and uh, eliminate them or train them to focus on just one thought at a time, which is, you know, when we focus our mind and concentrate on an object and go into an absorption trance, if we were to, we're still in thought. We just have thought about one thing over and over again. So we have one long, continuous stream of thoughts about the same thing. Uh, but it's still thought. We're still in the world of thought. And so the Vajrayana approach is, is don't bother trying to focus your thoughts on one thing. Don't pay attention to your thoughts. Don't get lost in the by applying yourself to this practice continually at all times, both during and between meditation sessions. Everybody in your family will think that you've totally lost. <laughs> Right? If you don't pay attention to any of your thoughts, you won't like do anything rational. Anyway, that was a sidebar. Um, eventually, all coarse and subtle thoughts will be, be calmed in the empty expanse of the essential nature of your mind. So all the mental activity of our substrate that, our sub, that is churned up from the substrate, the Aliyavishnana will naturally settle of its own accord because we're not giving it any energy, any credence, any uh, further support, right? You become still in an unfluctuating state in which you experience bliss like the warmth of a fire, luminosity like the dawn, and non-conceptuality like an ocean unmoved by waves. Derek? Yeah. Now here's the second part of my question, because here this sounds like non-distraction and mindful bare attention of mental events letting things subside and this really sounds like shamatha 
it no longer has that word of examination of circumstances, that kind of sense of it's like awareness of the circumstances by which things arise and disappear. So here this sounds like, but yet he's equating to do. I think that's what confused me. I was like, the one sounded like Vipassana and then he, he went into it again. And I'm like, well, now the Vipassana aspect has disappeared and he's describing something very familiar. It's true. Yeah. I had okay. the same experience right. where he sort of it seems to be mushing the two I, up. I just wanted to see if, if like I was missing something like a distinction he was making. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, he, he does. He does. It sort of flits back and forth. And and to some extent, there is the the these those beginning phases of Vipassana practices can also be used as shamatha type practices by looking at where thoughts arise, abide, and, and disperse um, without like examining sort of extensively, let's say, where that place is or what the nature of it is by just divorcing yourself from the content. It's, it's another way of divorcing yourself from the content and just experiencing the flow of them. In that first paragraph, he uses pretty passive language. Like he says, from the vantage point of the stillness of awareness, one may observe an increasingly rigorous internal objectivity. So, you know, and so, so he's not, I may be reading too much into it, but it doesn't sound like he's saying you're doing this investigation. It feels more like an observation, which does feel more passive and shamata-like. Good. Thank you very much. That's right. So you settle into the um, substrate, which has these two, three qualities, the warmth of a fire, bliss, sorry, like the warmth, of, bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. The culmination of this process of settling the mind in its natural or unconfigured state, meaning its uh, Alia Vijnana state, as Samantabhadra comments, when finally... The ordinary mind of an ordinary being disappears as it were. Um, let's see. Oh, I see. This uh, this is not printed. Well, I don't know. Um, finally, the ordinary mind of an ordinary being disappears as it were. Consequently, compulsive thinking subsides and... Um, raving, roving thoughts vanish into the space of awareness. You then slip into the vacuity, the empty quality of the substrate in which self, others, and objects disappear. And by clinging to the experiences of vacuity and luminosity while looking inward, the appearances of self, others, and objects vanish. This is the substrate consciousness. In truth, you have come to the essential nature of the mind by clinging to it as in an absorption state, you would then suppress the arising of um, objects, objective, the um, manifestation of objectification. All sensory and mental appearances are illuminated or made manifest by this substrate consciousness, but it does not enter into or cognitively fuse with these appearances. They do not arise anywhere in physical space, but rather emerge from or are located in and eventually dissolve back into the immaterial space of the substrate. Mm 
but he says uh, it does not enter into or cognitively fuse with the appearances um i found that confusing at first but i think he's talking about there's there's no sense of identification of um perceiver and thought and, and we t we saw this term of c cognitive fusion earlier which is not like uh which which is the sense of identifying with our thoughts with the content of our thoughts substrate is clearly ascertained when the mind is completely settles into its natural state but you also enter into this state in deep sleep not the stare the state in deep sleep deep dreamless sleep when you faint and in the culminating phase of the dying process as noted above the three salient characteristics of the substrate or bliss luminosity not conceptuality when experienced from within the context of the ordinary mind, which presumably would be the uh, what he called earlier as the manifest nature of mind, the three primary mental afflictions of craving, hostility, and delusion, i.e. the three roots, are seen to be highly toxic, disruptive influences on the mind. <clears throat> So normally the three roots take over our mind. But when these same mental processes are viewed from the perspective of the substrate consciousness, one recognizes that their essential natures correspond respectively. I hope you found this interesting. This is like the key to how to transform the poisons into wisdom, is to see their essential nature, right? Like when we go through the five uh, clashes. Desire is bliss. Desire is bliss. <clears throat> yeah. The, the illusion is um, uh, um, spaciousness, right? Non-conceptuality. That's right. And hostility is... <laughs> Clearly, you don't know what's going on. <laughs> Clarity. Clarity. I think it's extremely interesting because, I mean, when caught in the moment, if, 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 if there's a chance to just reflect even for a half second on that, I mean, it could, it, that's a powerful fulcrum. Yeah, yeah, flip it entirely, right? Yeah. So, so remember that next time. <laughs> maybe, maybe next week it'll happen too. Sometime. But that's the, you know, that's the real issue: is remembering the instructions. Yeah, yeah. As it as it happens. Uh, let's see. From which each of those afflictions arises, as these primal qualities of the essential nature of mind become conditioned and manifest in the ordinary human mind, they become the afflictions. But their essential nature is not toxic in any way. The, the emotions are pure in nature, right? We've, we've seen that in the Vajrayana. And that is the Vajrayana path. The substrate consciousness is known by various names within the Buddhist and other contemplative traditions. In the text, the commentary in Bodhicitta, 
and interestingly he says attributed to the famed Nagarjuna so um, Nagarjuna is famous for his Mula Madhyamaka Karaka which is the root verses on the middle way um, and has 27 chapters and is like emptiness, emptiness, emptiness um, just like over and over and over again and he goes through 27 different topics all your major favorite topics in Buddhism he goes through them and then he has five other texts that are similar that, that focus on emptiness and those are the six collections the collection of reasoning that has six texts and scholars as they're known in the West, you know, nerds in the West who like study the language and the, the appearance of texts in the in so-called historical record, find that these texts like appeared in the same period and they have the same character characteristics linguistically and blah, blah, blah. And they say, okay, the same guy wrote these texts. And then there's all these other texts that are attributed to Nagarjuna in the, the collection of literature that came from India to Tibet, which has been assembled into this thing called, the, that in English we would say the canon, the Tibetan canon, boom. There's the, the one set that's the Buddha's teachings, the conjure, and then there's the tenjure. That's the writings of Nagarjuna and other great masters. And in that, Nagarjuna is attributed with a bunch of other texts including this text, the commentary on Bodhicitta, and then this other text called Praise to the Dharmadhatu. There's his three series of texts. There's um, the, the, the series on reasoning. There's the series of praises. He has three praises, one to Dharmadhatu, one to, I don't know, something else. And then he has a series of uh, uh, teachings to, I think, I think the second set is where all the teachings to kings come in. He writes these long texts to various kings. And then he has all these Vajrayana texts are attributed to him. One of the most core Vajrayana texts called... Okay. <laughs> that means that I'm going off on a tangent, right? <laughs> That's what happens. Anyway... Attributed. I'm glad he said that. So, uh, when iron approaches the magnet, it quickly spins in, as as though it did. It like knows what to what direction to, to uh, uh, you know position itself. In the same way, the substrate consciousness has no true existence. Yet, when it comes, i.e., from a previous life and goes, i.e., to the next life, it moves just as though it were real. So it has this sort of programmed functional the way it functions is this okay and so it takes hold of another lifetime and existence in Mahayana Buddhism especially as interpreted by um, Lama Allen's hero, Tsongkhapa, this foundational level of consciousness has also been called the subtle mind and the subtle continuum of mental consciousness. 
in Theravada Buddhism, the same phenomenon is known as the Bhavanga, or the ground of becoming. And in the early Mahasanga, sorry, Mahasangika school of the, I'm sorry, Cynthia. No, no, it was just you were frozen. That's, oh. She missed. Um, the... Mula Sanskrit for moon. She missed the Oh, few. this is the hand motion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I missed the code. I didn't do it right. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> you thought all along that we were just um, like saying that he was crazy? <laughs> no, no, I heard the whole thing. I was, I was here. I just. <laughs> the root consciousness that acts as a support for visual consciousness, etc., just the root of a tree sustained the leaves, the meditative level at which one has completely settled the mind in its natural state corresponds to the achievement of the proximate meditation or threshold of the first dhyana state. Right, so this is the entryway into the first absorbs 11 and then you have the dhyanas as 12 the first dhyana right <clears throat> theravada buddhist contemplatives report that when one gains access to the first dhyana one experiences a naturally pure unencumbered luminous state of consciousness <clears throat> which manifests when awareness is withdrawn from the physical senses and when the activities of the mind such as discursive thoughts and images have subsided. This happens naturally when one falls into dreamless sleep and in the last moments of life, the dimension, this dimensional consciousness is experienced as an undefiled state of radiant mind that precedes mental activities and from which such movements of the mind arise. <clears throat> and this is the essential nature of the mind that the Buddha referred to in his declaration of Bavanga, I know of no other single process which thus developed and made much of is pliable and workable, as is this mind. Monks, the mind which is thus developed and made much of, I love that phrase, made much of, is pliable and workable. Monks, I know of no other single process so quick to change as is this mind. Monks, this mind is luminous but it is defiled by adventitious defilements. Monks, this mind is luminous, but it's free from adventitious defilements. Right, so a version that has footnotes, it's not in the source book, unfortunately, but it shows you the sutra reference to this, where he mentions the book. which is one of a like huge thing that he says in the Pali Canon
time <clears throat> to unlock the power of this natural period the mind must be fully <laughs> hey, hey Derek maybe you should the mind must um, be fully awakened yeah. log off and log on again or something but it's or I could uh, you know what they say it stops a video yeah try that right it's much better look at my dog ZG anyway right Oh! <laughs> now it can still happen. We just won't know it's happening, <laughs> right? Oh, oh we'll the know. freezing part, right? Yeah, this might be no, better though. If my... we've been losing, we've been losing a lot of what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully this helps, right? Oh, uh, let's see. <clears throat> to unlock the power of this natural purity. The mind must be fully awakened by meditative training and samadhi, so its natural, its radiant potential is activated. The luminous mind and it acts as a primal drive to develop and refine one's mind. In a similar vein, the Buddha seems to be referring to this luminous nature when he comments on the sign of the mind, which is ascertained only when the five obscurations have been quelled with the achievement of shamatha. That's referring to uh, this thing that happens in absorption practice where the sign Derek, it's still freezing. And emerges, which we looked at. Now it seems worse. <laughs> I wonder why, like, all of a sudden. I mean, normally his connection is good. Yeah, um, it's never happened. There must be some something strange afoot. Yeah, it could could be an internet connection thing. Maybe service is is poor right now. What are you guys up to? Hi. Welcome back. For a brief moment. Yeah. Is there weather up there? Like <coughs> Come I in, Derek. Oh, up here. Derek in power Derek went in out. The substrate. But... Derek in the substrate. Where are you?
that or something with the, the internet. It's really flaky tonight. Yeah. Can you hear me okay now? Mm, at the moment, but it's definitely in and out. In and out. Out. I wonder if you could sign in through like a phone because uh, then you'd be using a, a different type of connection. I'm texting him that. If he turns the Wi-Fi off on his phone, right? He'd have to turn the Wi-Fi off on his phone. Yeah. How can you tell when it goes out? It's just silent. <laughs> Yeah, there's like no more ambient sound at all. It just goes dead silent. Oh, here we go. Okay, picking up where I left off, the ultimate nature of the mind. Once the essential nature of the mind has been experientially identified, one is poised to explore the ultimate nature of the mind. I know yeah. that word, phenomenology. <laughs> Derek, are you there? I am, yeah, keep going. <laughs> well, how about let's just talk through it instead of reading it all. So, uh, so now he's going into the Vipassana practice, right? Can you see me at all? We don't see you, but we hear you. Oh, here. How's that? You look lovely. <laughs> I can't see you. I can't figure out how to get a change my view. So I see everybody. You can only okay. see four, four people on the phone. At a time. Okay, whatever. Um, so it goes into the Vipassana practice. And uh, so contemplatives trained in settling the mind its natural state by closely applying mindfulness of mind are able to observe how objective... Uh, mental appearances emerge from and dissolve back into the substrate. So this is similar to what we saw before, how thoughts arise and dissolve and disappear. And now they, they can note, and they can note how subjective mental processes emerge from and dissolve back into the flow of the substrate consciousness. <clears throat> but to identify the ultimate nature of mental events, we return to the question of the relation between the whole and parts, specifically between mental events and their attributes. So contemplatives identify consciousness by way of its divining characteristics, namely uh, cognizant, luminosity and cognizance. And... Um, this, is, this analysis is applied to all mental processes, each of which has its own qualities by which it's identified. 
The mind is not identical to its attributes, but neither does it exist independently from them. So immediately after determining the primacy of the mind within the triad of body, speech, and mind, which is a beginning level, um, preliminary level practice that one does in this uh, process where one starts um, by, by saying like, what's, what's most important in the world? body, speech, or mind, and we ultimately figure out that mind is what determines everything else. Um, and, and thereby, and uh, following that, we establish the mind as baseless and rootless. The Vajra essence proceeds to analyze the mode of existence of the mind, first asking whether it has form, and upon de determining it does not, questions are then raised about the source and location of the mind. So this is going into Vipassana practice. Does it arise from the physical elements or from space? Can its size be determined? Are the space of the mind and external space the same or different? The conclusion is that the mind is the very nature of space. Its luminosity is indivisible from space itself with no duality. In the Mahamudra Dzogchen traditions, in particular, the ultimate mode of existence of the mind is analyzed in terms of the origin, location, and dissolution of the mind. Karma Chakme highlights the efficacy of first exploring the ultimate or actual nature of the mind as means for subsequently fathoming the ultimate nature of all other phenomena. Training and probing into the origin, location, and dissolution, he cuts, he asserts, cuts through conceptual elaboration so it's easy to learn, understand, know, and realize. Um, doing it from the outside is an endless process of cutting through needles and branches. And uh, the Tibetan Dzogchen master, Lara Blinka, also known as Teratun Sogyal, Sogyal, the famous Sogyal Rinpoche's prior incarnation, summarizes how the mind's nature is ascertained as a result of such investigation. And the quote is, therefore, however much mere appearances that are empty of cause, consequence, and essential nature may arise in the aspects of birth, cessation, and abiding of a deceptive mind, or else in the aspects of origin, location, and destination. From the very moment they arise, ultimately such moments Movements and transformations have never existed. Recognition of, of that is known as realization of the actual nature of mind. So this little glimpse into the Vipassana stage of the practice where we go from settling in the substrate consciousness to the process of Vipassana, which um, ultimately leads to realizing the ultimate nature of mind by, by understanding the um, illusory nature of the substrate consciousness. Oh, let's see. Let's skip that quote after which Alice says this concise mode of analysis regarding the origin, location, and destination of the mind is emphasized in these two traditions of contemplative inquiry as the most effective first step in realizing the emptiness of inherent nature of all phenomena. While Buddhism as a whole presents a wide variety of methods for refining one's intentional skills by means of training in shavata, 
Strong emphasis in Mahamudra and Dzogchen is the practice of settling the mind in its natural state, known as shamatha focused on the mind, versus the wide range of other practices we find in uh, the Buddhist tradition, ranging from love and kindness to uh, the practice of the different kasinas or the emblems of the energies of the four uh, elements, earth, water, fire, and air, and so forth. <clears throat> In contrast to the common approach of first studying the Yamaka treatises on emptiness, Uh, based on the perfection of wisdom sutras, which is what we're, what uh, many of us have done for years in these courses, and then turning to meditation. The great adepts of Mahamudra and Sokshan encourage us first to achieve shamatha by focusing on the mind and then be introduced to the Madhyamaka view of emptiness and Mahamudra and Sokshan views regarding the transcendent, transcendent nature of consciousness known as the indwelling mind of clear light, primordial consciousness, or pristine awareness. So um, this is sort of this this is sort of a way of understanding the way Trumpram Shape taught meditation with the technique of letting go of the in-breath. <clears throat> it's um, it's basically this Dzogchen and to some extent Mahamudra technique of introducing students to the nature of their mind in a more direct and um, um, uh, faster approach. And then at the same time, cultivating understanding to study and cultivating behavioral change, ideally through other practices such as the four immeasurables and Tongle. Uh, with the many veils that obscure the essential nature of the mind have been gradually removed through the process of settling the mind in its natural state, the nature of conditional conditioned consciousness is seen nakedly and while sustain this immediate awareness of the essential nature of the mind with relative ease one can recognize that it is devoid of its own intrinsic identity, one that could exist independently of the conceptual framework within which is identified and demarcated from all other phenomena. So achieving shamatha and then uh, um, looking at the nature of the mind in a madhyamaka fashion and thereby realizing the absence of intrinsic identity of the mind instead of um, focusing on the absence of intrinsic identity of phenomena or the self in some um, in any other sort of larger way just focusing uh, specifically sorry exclusively on the mind so we're alternating between uh, an experiential situation, and then a kind of a discourse, where we, where we, where we sort of tell ourselves, give ourselves a view. Yeah, I don't know about the giving ourselves a view, but um, or adopting a view, uh, ideally being introduced to a view, or uh, 
we're gradually gaining a certain view, understanding a certain view of the nature of the mind. So, so, the, in, of, so the inconceivable experience gets a, gets a conceptual translation. Ooh. One way or another, it does, right? So the traditional version is we give, we start with the description, the definition of of what is what is inconceivable. We learn about inconceivable nature of reality, and then um, they're they're comparing that to working from the outside inward, inside starting with the outside of a bush, trimming the leaves and so on and so forth. And that's the gradual path of the sutra system of Hinayana and Mahayana. And Trungpa Rinpoche even uses that analogy of um, cutting back from the outside of a plant. Um, in one of his books, I think it's my, uh, Myth, uh, Myth of Freedom, maybe, he says, we're not able to go right directly at the root of the mind. But we'll start from the outside, trimming the, the, the leaves and so forth. And that's working with thoughts and shamatha practice. But at the same time, he's also, um, which he doesn't reveal initially, or we don't really make it obvious to students initially, but at the same time, by virtue of not having a focus on the in-breath, we're introducing the possibility of, for those who were um, uh, highly intelligent, let's say, to start to look at what's going on on the in-breath. What is the, uh, the nature of experience when it has no, um, no task to, to accomplish. <clears throat> and uh, some of the readings tonight had to do, we're talking about control. This whole thing of controlling the breath. There was a, a long section tonight about controlling the breath and how um, a lot of people find it hard to not control their breath when they're given the task of meditation on the breath. And um, a lot of people experience this and they, they, they experience constriction in their throat or their lungs because they're paying so much attention to their breath, they end up trying to modulate the breath. And so we keep repeating over and over again not to, not to manipulate the breath. Whatever it is, is fine. You know, people are smart and that obviously they know, oh, you know, the calm, smooth breath means that you're in a deeper state of, of mind. And so they try to achieve that deeper state of mind by manipulating the breath, and that leads to problems. And, and then Alan says, the only thing that we are controlling is um, we're controlling what our awareness does with its content. And initially, we're given the task of controlling the attention to focus on one object, the breath, is what he says. And so he's, he's citing the traditional version of mindfulness of breath meditation where you, you focus on the full cycle of the breath. And so you, that is uh, this one thing that you control. And um, 
the the method that Trump Grimshi gave us of not controlling anything on the in-breath is an immediate uh, introduction of the Mahamudra Dzogchen technique of settling the mind in its natural state by letting go of the um, the sense of control entirely. And this is why most people, I think probably all of us, can't do that at first. We're not able to not do anything on the end breath. <laughs> and uh, we're all confused by it. And like, mo most, most people don't do that part of the technique for many years. Yeah, I actually, I actually um, went to a, um, the feeling of my diaphragm instead, just like on the outside, like just tried to feel my stomach. You know, yeah. uh, I, 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 I gave myself like a, a something else to feel then. Yeah, basically, you have to have some alternatives. And so what Rimshay gives in various places subtly as he gives as alternatives. Um, he gives the space around you. Um, he gives the space internally of the mind, which is nearly impossible for a beginner, not to mention an advanced practitioner of you know number of years. And uh, and then in certain places later on he gives the body as the sort of ultimate he says is the ultimate reference point. And that I think is probably the the most effective for yeah. people to use on the in breath as a sort of springboard for not doing anything, uh, because it's it's a it's um, easily identifiable and, and uh, we can we can feel it we can connect to it, um, but it's also like a a. a uh, an object that spans a lot of space, let's say. It's not one-pointed. And so you're immediately sort of uh, connecting with this general image of body. And that's one of the readings that we were talking about, about control. I also love the, uh, the ego unemployment term. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you have to file for unemployment. The ego has to uh, file for unemployment insurance compensation. <laughs> uh, so let's go to um, the transcendent nature of consciousness. On the next page. And uh, by the way, uh, up above that, he goes through the, on the top of the page, he says, all Buddhists refute the inherent existence of the I or personal identity for the self is nowhere to be found among the five psychophysical aggregates. And uh, so he's going through, like he's touching on traditional Vipassana meditation techniques. And, um, and he's being, a fr being trained in, Madhyamaka, being trained in the Galupa tradition, he immediately touches on what Galupas touch on when they go through the absence of essence of self of the person, is they say that 
<clears throat> this does not refute the relative self. And uh, they, they always quote the Buddha who used terms such, used the term self in a relative way or the term I in a relative sense. And, um, and they, they uh, cite these as support for the idea that there is still a relative self on a relative level. And he quotes this, this, uh, this famous supposed quote that the Buddha said on his deathbed, where he says, you must be a refuge unto yourself. Are people familiar with this quote? Be a guide unto yourself, be a light unto yourself. Anyway, turns out to be uh, not an accurate attribution. So then, uh, transcendent nature of consciousness, the realization of the emptiness of inherent nature, the mind is common to followers of Sutra and Vajrayana Buddhism by engaging in Sutrayana methods of Vipassana on the basis of achieving shamatha. One realizes the empty nature of the mind with respect to the subtle continuum of mental consciousness. The empty nature of the mind with respect to the subtle continuum of mental consciousness being the uh, substrate or Ali Vishnana by using the extraordinary skillful means of Vajrayana, particularly Mahamudra Dzogchen, one cuts through the conditioned nature of that substrate consciousness. More quickly, I'm adding, more quickly than through the Sutriana method that he's referenced above and earlier, which takes longer, supposedly. One cuts through the conditioned nature of the substrate consciousness and realizes emptiness from the perspective of the transcendent nature of consciousness or emptiness of that uh, mental continuum. And he quotes from the Vajra essence. Previously, your intellect and meditation demarcated outer from inner, grasped them as being distinct. Now ascertaining that there is no outer inner, you come upon the nature of great all-pervasive openness, which is called meditation, free of the intellect and devoid of activity. In such a meditative state, motionlessly rest your body without modifying it, like a corpse in a charnel, charnel ground, and your voice rests unmodified, dispensing with all speech and recitations, as if your mind were a lute with the strings cut and pub. That is the uh, that is the second of the three images that Rimshe uses when he talks about well-being in that mindfulness of livelihood talk. And uh, let your mind rest without modification, naturally releasing it in a state of primordial being without alternating it in any way. With these three dispensing with activities of body, speech, and mind, you set it, settle in meditative equipoise, devoid of activity, um, having cut through the substrate. And uh, what was it? Um, the, the key aspect is not modified, unmodified. And he gives another quote from Dujalinka and this other text by him called Buddhahood without meditation, which if it were that easy would be an extremely popular technique. 
Although there is no outer inner with respect to the ground of being in the mind, self-grasping simply superimposes boundaries between outer and inner, and there's no more than that. It's no more than that. Just as water is naturally in its naturally fluid state freezes solid due to currents of cold wind, likewise, the naturally fluid ground of being is thoroughly established as samsara by nothing more than the cords of self-grasping itself. Realizing, recognizing how that is so relinquish good, bad, mutual bodily activities remain like a corpse in a charnel ground doing nothing. <laughs> Likewise, relinquish the three kinds of verbal activity and remain like a mute. Also relinquish the three kinds of mental activity and rest without modification like the, the autumn sky free of the three contaminating conditions. This, this sort of practice is best done when you're on a solitary retreat because otherwise people get mad at you for not talking and things like that. This is called meditative equipoise. It's also called transcendence of the intellect for by relinquishing the nine kinds of activity. I'm sure you know what those are. <clears throat> Activities are released without doing anything and nothing is modified by the intellect. In the context of this vital point, you acquire great confidence within yourself. And then he talks a little bit about open presence and uh, goes through another one of those uh, sort of pet peeves where you find this term open presence used a lot these days in various med presentations of meditation and people affiliated with the, the, the use of the term open presence in Dzogchen. And he goes to some lengths to assert that the uh, use of open presence in Dzogchen is a very specific, highly advanced experience as opposed to, and, and is not what people are talking about more generally. Anyway, on the bottom of the next page, I'm skipping the, the uh, different types of open presence, he says, while resting in the substrate consciousness in which thoughts and other activities of the ordinary mind have vanished, one examines the very nature of the mind in which thoughts have ceased, recognizing that it doesn't truly emerge from anywhere, it's not truly located anywhere, and it doesn't truly depart to anywhere. It's inherently empty of any real origin, location, destination. One then examines the nature of the awareness that's come to this realization, recognizing that there's no difference between the awareness of which one is aware and the awareness with which one is aware. The dichotomy of subject and object melts away, and one then rests in open presence with no striving, effort, modification, no activity of any kind. All the activities of the conditioned mind of a sentient being are suspended, and one cuts through the substrate to realize the emptiness of the open expanse of the space-like nature of awareness, i.e. the true nature the ultimate, true, transcendent nature of consciousness. So this is reminiscent of the four Bodhi, absolute bodhicitta slogans that occur at the beginning of the 59 slogans of Atisha. Slogans numbers two through five are um, um, 
regard all dharmas as dreams and then examine the nature of unborn awareness. So um, this one basically, this system basically starts from the second one, examine the nature of unborn awareness. Um, so you see that in this paragraph, examining the nature of awareness that has come to this, sorry, um, examine the very nature of the mind in which thoughts have ceased, recognizing that it doesn't truly emerge from anywhere, etc. And then um, liberate even the antidote as one that examines the nature of the awareness that's come to this realization, recognizing that there's no difference between the awareness of which one is aware and the awareness with which one is aware. And the dichotomy of subject-object melts away. And then um, rests in the, in the alia, the essence is the last of those slogans. And it refers to <clears throat> the state of uh, being, so to speak, that is beyond the Alia Vishnana. Uh, one then uh, rests in open presence with no striving, effort, modification, and so forth. So uh, let's go completely. Uh, let's see, on the next page is a couple of little interesting things, just to conclude. Uh, he affiliates the three qualities of the nature of the, uh, of the essential nature of mind with the three kayas. So although the three qualities of the substrate are qualities of the samsaric fabric of mind, the, the Alaya Vishnana, they are also the three qualities when they are liberated. They are also the three qualities of the transcendent nature of awareness or being, as uh, portrayed by the three kayas. So, um, at the top of the page, this is the view of the great perfection, referring to what went before, in which one experiences the one taste of all phenomena, samsara. Nirvana is being equally pure, expressions of pristine awareness. So pristine awareness is the term that he uses to identify the uh, enlightened, the state of enlightened being that resides beyond the essential nature of mind, which is the Alaya Vishnana. The empty essential nature of this awareness. So the empty essential nature of this, the empty nature of the Alaya Vishnana is transformed into the Dharmakaya, its manifest or luminous nature, the Smolukaya and its spontaneous expressions of limitless compassion, which would be, what's the third quality of the Alaya Vishnana that's missing? You have um, the essential nature of awareness, the luminous nature and the spontaneous expressions. So one of them is clear, clearly luminosity. And then the other two qualities are emptiness or non-conceptuality and then bliss. Any idea which, which are, is which? So, so bliss is, is uh, the Dharmakaya. Right? And, no. 
thought it was the opposite. Uh, luminosity is Sambhogakaya or is luminosity Dharmakaya? No, luminous, luminous nature is called the Sambhogakaya. He says that. That one's clear. Right, so bliss so bliss then is the dharmakaya and and uh uh the nirmanakaya is is spaciousness do do others agree with him my opposite yeah because they they often talk about the third the nirmanakaya and compassion they use the term compassion even though they're talking about that spontaneous unstoppable display um so bliss body Right, isn't that the bliss body? And the usually Dharma the Sambhogakaya is called the bliss body, and here it's it's affiliated with luminosity and not the complete enjoyment. Isn't the I know, it's a little confusing, but I, I would have gone with uh, non-conceptualities, Dharmakaya, lumina, luminosity, since he affiliated that with uh, Sambhogakaya. That makes sense. It's the first level of manifestation and then Desire is the uh, manifestation of nirmanakaya. Yeah, that does make sense. Desire and nirmanakaya. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And altogether, it's called a swabhavakaya. And let's see, at the bottom of the page, he says there's no explicit references in the Pali Canon regarding any unconditioned dimension of consciousness. So. It's an odd thing where if you search through the Pali Canon, like by going to, there's a couple of websites that have all of the texts of the Pali Canon translated into English. And you can type in, uh, you can type in the name of people, you know, you can type in search terms. Um, and it also has like very cool lists of all the different sutras in the Pali Canon. It has their organization into the three baskets and the subdivisions of those and so forth. But also you type in, uh, you try to find any description by the Buddha of Nirvana. And um, the closest you get is that he refers to Nirvana as being unborn and deathless. And that it's peaceful, blissless, blissful, auspicious. And uh, he, there's no, nowhere where he there's this uh, only this one little section where Alan pulls out where he says consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous. Uh, there's this where there's nirvana is where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous. It's odd that he says consciousness is there's still consciousness. And earth, water, fire, air have no basis. They're both short and uh, so forth are holy, they're both short and long and short, small and great, fair and foul, name and form are wholly destroyed. And with the cessation of consciousness, this is all destroyed. Uh, but he never really talks about the experience of Nirvana any further than that, interestingly. So anyway, that's about it for tonight. There was a bunch of, some other interesting stuff than the other ones, but a lot of it was uh, repetition, such as the sensory deprivation tank and so forth. Any any comments? Real quick, yeah. When the Buddha um, was recognized by his former disciples, uh, former, not disciples, when they became his disciples and they recognized something in him, didn't he say he found something then? 
He says, I found the deathless. The, um, the unborn, he says, I have found the unborn and the deathless. And it's peaceful bliss. Yeah, that's one of the places he says that. What else? Anything else? So the basic idea is the structure of mind is being, you know, like this, the first seven consciousnesses and then the eighth consciousness as being, you know, important to, to remember that he's calling it the essential nature of consciousness, the eighth consciousness. And then beyond that, breaking through that is... Um, is the uh, true nature or uh, primordial nature of awareness. What is, what is, Alan calls it primal awareness or something, pristine awareness. So what do you say we all go on a field trip to do a, a sensory deprivation tanks? <laughs> There's a place here in uh, Mount Kisco. You all, you all in on that? With the double espresso. <laughs> right. We go to the coffee shop nearby beforehand and get, get double espressos and then go into the deprivation tank. <laughs> should try it, though. It's neat. I did it once. It's interesting. Yeah, me too. What do you think? I thought I would be bored to tears, but it was actually really relaxing. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. And it was, I did this way before I had practiced meditation or anything like that. It was, you know, a long time ago. But I, 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 I was actually, you know, worried that I would, you know, get claustrophobic and, and bored. But it was, it was really relaxing. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so too. It's totally relaxing. It reminds me of, of um, lying in mud pits. Right. Has anyone ever done that? Clay no. mud pits where you don't sink and you don't float. You're just immersed and contained. It's very strange. Is, is the mud warm or cold? It's, it's warm. Yeah. yeah, body temperature. That's important. Yeah, cool. Is the one in Mount Kisco, it's in water? You're in water? Yeah. Yeah, you should check it out. There's these like pods. They say the Dead Sea and, and the high salt content is like that. Yeah, you can just float in it without effort. Yeah. Anyway, any other comments or questions or should we end? By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy, wrongdoing, from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. Yoshness and sorrow, free all beings. By the confidence, the confidence of the Lord, the Son of the Greatest, may the garden of the Rickness and Bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be the spell, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory.
<laughs> Thank you, everyone. Take Thank care. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Bye. Bye. Be well. See you next week. You too.